let me ask you this. Do you have a financial plan? Like, do you have some plans for how you're going to get to the next goals that you have that include money? And we're all in different places with that. And we all have different goals, different things that we want to maybe see in our life or that we, we need to take care of in the next little while or the next phase of life. It might be something like uh, paying off your student loans or getting out of debt. Uh, it might be trying to figure out how you could move out of your parents' home and get your first apartment or something like that. Um, maybe it's, it's trying to be able to save for a down payment so you could buy a house. There's all kinds of stuff when it comes to our finances that we might need to worry about or think about, have a plan for. Uh, things like retirement or helping your kids uh, get through their education one day. Uh, we've got RRSPs and RESPs and TFSAs, and there's all sorts of different things that you can invest in, in, in mutual funds, or these days cryptocurrencies is the one that everybody's talking about. Should I invest in cryptocurrency? Would that be a good investment? Would it make me lots of money? Am I going to be happy about that in the long run? And uh, I'm just wondering if you have a financial strategy. Have you ever sat down and thought through your budget, thought through uh, what your future goals are, and tried to match up uh, what you're doing with your money and what's going to happen in the future? Maybe you've seen a financial planner. And again, everybody's situation is different. We all have, um, we're all in a different spot in life and maybe have different priorities and, and different challenges and different opportunities in life. But if you go to a financial planner, somebody that might help you through some of that, which by the way, I think is a really good idea. A lot of the advice, again, it might be fine-tuned to your specific circumstances, but there's some big things that most financial advisors are going to tell you. Things like, hey, you should think about um, paying down your debt, making sure that that's under control. Things like building up an emergency fund, because we know in life there's always things that come up and bumps in the road, and you want to be prepared so that one little thing that comes up in your life that affects your finances doesn't throw you into a total chaos. Probably they're going to talk to you about putting money aside, every paycheck for retirement, so that, that one day when you can't work full time, that you're, you still have some money and you can provide for yourself in the future. And whatever else they might tell you and whatever your goals might tell you, there's probably going to be some of those big things that they're going to, they're going to tell just about everybody to start thinking about at different parts in their life. But I know there's a lots of people that when it comes to their financial planning, they just don't really want to think about it at all. Maybe you're in that boat. Maybe you don't like to think about money really at all. You don't like to do a budget. You don't even like to really get into the details of your bank account because money can be really stressful. Because maybe you, you're scared of, of what you might find if you really start to look into how much debt do I have and who do I owe money and, and how much is coming in every month and how much am I spending. Maybe you feel like I'm, I'm not going to have enough money to do the things that I really want to do and so I don't really want to go there and look too closely because then I would have to say no to a whole bunch of things that I'd rather say yes to and so I'd rather be a, a little bit more ignorant of what my financial picture is like so that I can do some of the stuff that I want to do and I'll worry about the consequences later. I, there's a lot of emotions. Some people just, they really don't like money and they don't like math and they don't know how it all works. Maybe you feel that way. It just doesn't make sense to me. It's not how I think. And so uh, I'd rather avoid the confusion. Maybe there's anxiety again because you think like we don't have enough and so I don't want to think about that too much. Or I don't think I'll ever hit these goals and so uh, there's no point in getting into it. 
But I think it's really important for us to have a financial plan because if you never have a plan financially to get where you need to go or, or even want to go, some of those goals that you want to hit, then the likelihood that you're going to get to that place is less and less and less. It's so important for us to kind of face some of those emotions if we have them and to be able to make a really good financial plan so that we can be realistic about our lives and our goals about where we're going and, and hopefully try and hit some of those things. And some of those goals are just, you know, at the beginning, it's just the basics of life. I just want to make sure that we're going to have enough. We're going to have a roof over our head. We're going to have food on the table and our family's going to be taken care of. Um, and then going from there to try and figure out maybe some of those other goals. But if you don't have any plans, you're probably not going to have much success. So I think it's a really good idea to have a financial plan of some kind to sit down and whether it's just you as an individual or if you're married with your spouse, maybe even to go to a financial planner and to start thinking through what's really important to you. But today I want to go a little bit deeper because I want to talk about our money and, and how we use it and how we plan for the future. But this is what I want to say to you is that if your financial plan is only about your finances, then it will ultimately fail. If your financial plan is only about your finances, then your plan will ultimately fail. In fact, this is a really important principle about money that I often tell people, and I've talked about it a lot. And in fact, when I do premarital counseling with couples who are getting married, and we talk about a bunch of stuff before they get married that, that everybody should kind of think through, one of the topics we always talk about is money because it is one of the biggest things that people fight about in their marriages and relationships. And one of the biggest things that breaks people up is money and money fights. And one of the things I always make sure I tell people is the reason I think why money Money is such a volatile issue in marriages or in relationships. Why people fight so much about money is because money's not really about money. It's not really about the numbers in our bank account. It's not really about um, how much income we have and, and exactly what those numbers are. Money is really about our values. That's why we get so emotional about our money and about our financial plans is because money, we use money based on what we really value. So if we really value security, we might be the kind of people that save and save and save and save and save and save. If we really value having fun and having a good time, we might end up spending our money on the things that we think give us the, the most fun in life, going on vacation or, or, or toys that we have um, to be able to enjoy life. But what it comes down to is uh, money is really a really good tracker for what we really value deeper down. And so the reason why we fight with people, the reason why we get so anxious about money, the reason why there's so much emotional investment when it comes to our finances is because what we're really talking about is our values, what we really deeply value in life and whether or not we, we can put the money there and make those things happen, achieve those goals or have the things that we think money's going to provide for us in terms of what's really valuable to us. And so today we're going through this series. We're now at part four. We've been talking about more than enough. What does it look like to really live a rich life? And I want to talk about specifically the resources we have, our money and our possessions, the stuff that we have and how that um, impacts living a really rich life. And my hope is that out of this, you'll start thinking through an investment plan. What do you really want to invest in, in your life? When you look at your resources, the stuff that you have, your home, your car, your bank account, your income, what do you really want to take all that stuff and invest it in because it's really, really valuable? What's really going to lead to uh, the experience of living a deeply rich life? 
So I want to do that by talking about this really powerful parable that Jesus teaches. And it's actually one of the ones that if, if you search through it, people who interpret this and scholars that try and figure it out, it's one of the ones that is most hard to interpret and, and most confusing for so many people. It comes from Luke chapter 16. So if you have a Bible or an app on your phone uh, and you want to turn to that and follow along, I want to read this parable and figure out what we can learn, what Jesus is teaching us about our values and about our financial plan. And I'll remind you that if your financial plan is only about finances, then ultimately it's going to fail. And that's one of the things Jesus is going to teach us. Well, then what should our investment plan be if it's not just about money? So Luke chapter 16 starts by saying, Jesus told, his dis told this story to his disciples. He had been, by the way, if you're reading through Luke up to this point, the last little while, he had been talking and primarily it's, it's saying that he's talking to the religious leaders, Pharisees and scribes. And he's pointing out to them um, some of the deficiencies in their thinking about God, about grace. We were just coming off some stories uh, that are very famous, like uh, the lost sheep and, and the lost coin and then the lost son, or what we often call um, the parable of the prodigal son. It's talking about how God is so gracious and loving and he's seeking us out. We talked about that in this series about how we are God's treasure. He's our treasure. And then he tells this story. But now he's been talking to the religious leaders. Now he also brings in specifically his disciples, people who are saying, I want to follow Jesus. So this very important for any of us who would say we're followers of Jesus, or we might say, I'm thinking about being a follower of Jesus, or I'm at least considering the things that Jesus taught. Here's what he says in the story. There was a certain rich man who had a manager handling his affairs. One day a report came that the manager was wasting his employer's money. So the employer called him in and said, what's this I hear about you? Get your report in order because you are going to be fired. So we have a, a, rich, a rich man. He's got a lot of stuff, a lot of money. He's employing other people and he has hired a manager to, to go about his affairs, his business affairs, to take care of uh, some of his business um, assets and to deal with some of the people that are uh, in a relationship with him business-wise. So this guy is in charge, the steward is, of managing his employer's business. He's empowered by his employer to have a financial responsibility and the freedom as he sees fit on behalf of his employer. So what he knows his employer would want him to do, he has the responsibility and some freedom to conduct business in that way. And this is a common arrangement in the ancient world. And we see a whole bunch of different arrangements that you might think of in the business world today. You have an employer hire somebody and says, I'm giving you freedom under what you know I would have you to do, to do what's best for my estate, for, for, for my companies, however you look at that. But you go and, and transact business for me. The problem is the employer sees that this guy is mismanaging it, says that he's wasting it. We don't know exactly how he's wasting it. It could be that he's lazy. It could be that he's not uh, collecting on, on the, the debts that he's supposed to be. Most likely, I think, and most interpreters, the most common way of interpreting this, although it doesn't say specifically, we don't know this for sure, but I think the most um, probable reason why the employer is really upset is because he's hearing that his employee is stealing from him. He's skimming off the top. He's wasting this money by probably taking more for himself. We don't know if that for sure, but that's probably what's happening. The manager realizes as he is told, hey, hey, get your affairs in order, get your report in order because you're going to be fired. So there's going to be this transitionary time. I need you to bring me the reports. I need to bring you all the, all the stuff you've been working on because you're going to be fired. So there's going to be a transitionary time where um, the people that he might be collecting debt from don't know that he's fired yet. 
but he is about to be fired. So he realizes, I am going to be unemployed and unemployable as a manager. So I'm about to get fired, I'm going to lose my job, and my reputation is going to be totally disgraced. People are going to know that I, I didn't do a good job for whatever reason that is, and that I've been fired. So not only am I not going to have a job, but I'm not going to be able to get a job as a manager. And this is a really important part of the parable, because he is now going to plan for that. He sees what's coming, and he's going to make a plan. Just lodge that away in your, your mind for a second. Verse 3 says, the manager thought to himself, now what? My boss has fired me. I don't have enough strength to dig ditches, and I'm too proud to beg. Ah, I know how to ensure that I'll have plenty of friends who will give me a home when I am fired. Okay, so now he goes, I'm getting fired as a manager. I'm not going to be able to do manual labor. I am just, I'm not equipped for that. I'm not strong enough physically to be able to do that. And I'm too proud to beg. And we might say, too proud to beg? Man, you're losing your job. You got to do what you got to do. But in this culture, that's very much an honor-shame culture. People would have understood that. Yeah, you don't want to be a beggar. You don't want to be uh, someone who is an imposition on other people, depends on other people. You want to be able to, to, to go work. Begging would have been something that would have been just seen as, as a, a, something you want to avoid at all costs. So people get it. You got to make a plan. So this guy is now saying, I need to make sure that when I am removed from management, I am received into houses. Actually, in the original Greek, if you read this really literally, there's a play on words that show this contrast of being, I'm being removed from management, I need to be received into somebody's house. I'm being removed from my job that gives me stability and income and security. I need to be received into people's homes so that I still have some kind of stability and that I'm cared for and I'm, I'm taken after. So this guy is, he's now going through the motions of making sure he has a plan. He's looking at insurance. What's the insurance? I'm about to lose my income. I need to make sure that I have some kind of insurance to fall back on so that I'm not out on the street. I can't dig and I don't want to beg. What am I going to do? I need to be welcomed into people's houses. I need to make sure that I have friends. See, in our culture, when we think of the prospect of uh, losing our income or losing our money, uh, we've got all kinds of insurances that you can choose to invest in. Sometimes you can't choose, you just have to. So we have things like employment insurance. If you work for, for a company, every time they pay you, they they're supposed to take off employment insurance that you pay into so that if you uh, lose your job, if you're laid off, that there's employment insurance so you have some kind of income coming in. There's all kinds of other different kinds of insurance that you might be able to, that you can pay for so that if something happens in your life and you can't work anymore, you still have an income. So you can get, um, you can get insurance for if you get sick, you can get insurance for if you, uh, if you get injured on the job. You can get insurance for uh, if you have a critical illness. You can pay into all these type of things so that if some of those terrible, awful things happen and you find yourself out of work, you still have insurance coming in. I've heard of all kinds of insurance, like professional athletes will insure parts of their body so that if something happens to my hand and I can't do what I do and I'm making all, these, all this money as a professional athlete, then I'm, I'm insured and I'll get paid so that, that I don't lose that income. Or even I've heard of models that certain parts of their body, if something happened, there was an accident or some kind of deformity and I could no longer make money with my body the, the way that I've been modeling, that I could still get this income. We, we always think through that insurance. We have life insurance and mortgage insurance and disability insurance, all kinds of stuff you can choose to pay in for. This guy 
goes, I need some insurance because I'm about to lose my income. And his insurance is going to be friends. That's a really interesting thing, isn't it? I want to make sure that there's people who will take care of me. In other words, he's saying, I'm going to be out of the wealth building business. I better get into the relationship building business. I'm being fired from the wealth building business. I better get into the relationship building business so that there are people who will be willing to take care of me. So here's what he does. Verse 5. He invited each person who owed money to his employer to come and discuss the situation. So we expect this rich man probably has all kinds of people that owe him something. And we're going to see examples, two examples of what the manager does. He asked the first one, how much do you owe him? The man replied, I owe him 800 gallons of olive oil. So the manager told him, take the bill and quickly change it to 400 gallons. I'm giving you a a 50% discount. He goes to the next one. And how much do you owe my employer? He asked the next man. I owe him a thousand bushels of wheat was the reply. Here the manager said, take the bill and change it to 800 bushels. So go from 1,000 down to 800. Now here's what we know about those numbers. These are are really big debts. So it's probably not just a a little uh, loan to an individual. Hey, can can I help you out here? You borrow this and you can pay me back. This is probably business loans or maybe more likely we're thinking of a man who owns uh, land and is renting it out. And these are people who owe him rent. Um, and so it'd be common if you had a big field, a big farm for wheat or a vineyard for olives, that you would say, what you owe me is, is this percentage of the harvest. So uh, if I have a, an olive vineyard, then this is how much you need to give me of the olive oil that, that you make to pay your rent. Or if you have wheat fields and a big farm, uh, you're renting it from me, you have to give me this much of your wheat. So we know that the olive oil, the 800 gallons, is a huge amount. This is not just a little family loan to, to someone. This is like a, a business, a large business, probably renting the vineyard. The amount of wheat that we would expect, uh, you know, the amounts that are put here, a thousand bushels of wheat, probably are 20 times what a a family might yield in a family farm. It is probably the rent on like 200 acres of land. So this is, again, probably a guy who has huge plots of land, and there are these business people who are renting from him, and this is what they owe him in order to come. Now, um, When you had a debt like that, the debt would be written in the handwriting of the one who owed the money. It was a way of saying, you know, if you go to the guy and you say, well, you agreed, right? This is your handwriting. You said you agreed to pay me this much. And is this your handwriting? Yes, this is my handwriting. It's just like we would uh, maybe sign a contract. Is this your signature? Yes. Well, then you owe this person this money. So the manager is going to these people and saying, let's rewrite these debts in your handwriting. That's the proof that you've agreed to it. Uh, But I'm going to cut you down from... um, from 800 gallons down to 400, and I'm going to cut you down from 1,000 to 800. Now, the percentages are different. The first guy gets a 50% cut. The second guy, um, it's just tw- uh, 20%. But the amounts, historians have kind of calculated, the amounts of discount are about the same. It'd be about worth, in, in this time period, 500 denarii. Now, one denarius would be equivalent to the wages you would pay a worker for a day's work. So both of them, if you just kind of did the math and said, well, what is the 400 gallons? What is the the 200 bushels? What does it come out to? About 500 denarii. 
So you could pay somebody for between a year and a year and a half wages based on the discounts that the manager is giving these people, which if we were thinking of what would that amount to in our culture, it would be tens of thousands of dollars. So this is a big discount. This is a lot of money, a lot of, a lot of wheat, a lot of olive oil that the guy is decreasing the amount that they have to pay. It's a really big deal. Now write this down. You don't owe as much as you used to owe. I'm giving you a a big discount, tens of thousands of dollars. And what's happening is the manager is counting on the ethic of reciprocity, that I do something for you, I care for you, and you're going to care for me. That you're going to remember how generous I was for you, and you're going to be able to pour that back into me. The reciprocity that comes from, I care for you, you care for me. I give you a big big discount. When you need something, when I need something, then maybe uh, you'll be there for me as well. This is something in the culture that would have been a very common practice and probably expected. You remember, in a good way, the things that people have done for you. So the manager is counting on that. I'm, I'm going to do something great for you. And then when I'm in need, because he knows, they don't know this yet, but he knows I'm going to be in need one day. And hopefully uh, you're going to be there for me in return. So verse 8 says, The rich man, so the owner, had to admire the dishonest rascal for being so shrewd. And it is true that the children of this world are more shrewd in dealing with the world around them than are the children of the light. So his master, and we'll get into this in a second, his master goes, you know, I got to tip my cap to you. That was pretty smart. That was shrewd. Shrewd means wise. It means prudent. It means thoughtful. It means you had a good plan and you executed that plan in a good way. And some of the summary here is that the children of this world are more shrewd, more wise, more prudent in dealing with the world around them than are the children of the light. Now, who are those people? Because you stop and ask this and you go, okay, this is why it's a difficult parable to interpret. You go, is Jesus teaching that I should lie and steal from my employer if I'm in trouble? After all, that's what this guy is doing. Don't pay the the guy, you know, he wasn't authorized to do this, but don't pay my, I'm going to, so he's stealing and he's lying and seemingly he's getting away with it, but his employer tips his cap and, and you know, we also might say, and is he buying friends? Are we supposed to buy friends? Like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pay for stuff for you so that one day you'll pay for stuff for me. It's very confusing. Okay, children of the world. What does that mean? Children of the world are those who see the world as it is. We might think of people who just look at the world and go, like, they're really good at business. They're really good at business planning. They're really good with money. They're really good with just, like, the practical wisdom of our world. How does the world work and how do I get ahead? Children of the light indicates those who see the world in a different light. And here, as Jesus is teaching, we would say, so these would be people who would say, I see everything in a different light in the light of what God is doing. So not just the way the world is, but the way that God would have the world operate. And the point is made here that the children of the world are oftentimes really good at planning through the systems of the world better than the children of the light are in being prudent with dealing the world around them. So what has happened? Let's figure out exactly uh, why the master, why the employer would, would actually um, admire the dishonest rascal. Because we walk away and go, I don't think Jesus is telling us to steal a lie or to buy friends. So what is it that he's done that is so smart and prudent? By giving generously to these people, so lowering their debts by so much money, he's done a few things. One, obviously he's benefited those people that owe the debt. They're happy. 
obviously. Oh, I owe less money. This is going to benefit me in a great way. And we talked about that reciprocity that he's counting on. They're going to look at this guy and go, thank you so much. The idea that they're going to have is, you must have gone to your employer and convinced him to give me such a good deal. Thank you so much for getting me such a good deal. Number two, and this is, this is really where it becomes kind of shrewd. He's made his employer look generous, look really good. See, people are going to go, not only did you get me a good deal, but you've convinced, your, your employer must be so generous if he would do this for me. Wow, what a great guy. He's lowered my debt. And so he's made his employer look good to other people. Probably words getting out. Oh, your employer's so generous. He's lowering these debts. He's not even making people pay back everything that they owe. That's amazing. And then thirdly, he's benefited himself. He's created that insurance and security for himself. Because think of it. He could have said... I'm being fired, but I still have opportunity. People don't know that I'm fired yet. I'm going to go into uh, these business relationships. I'm going to take everything that they owe, and then I'm going to take most of it for myself, and I'm going to run away. But if he had done that, his master could have just come after him. I'm going to find this guy. We're going to take this stuff back. We're going to put him in jail. We're going to punish him, all that kind of stuff. But since he's gone to these people, and he's benefited them so much, the debtors so much, and since he's made his employer look so generous, the employer now goes, I can't go back to those people and tell them, no, 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 you've got to pay me the full amount. That would be shameful. I would look so cheap. So I can't go recoup that, what I have. And I can't go to the, the manager who's stolen it and take it back from him, because he doesn't have that stuff. He gave this stuff to the debtors. And so I can't even say, you stole it, give it back to me. And now this guy's got all these friends that are going to take care of him. You go, man, that's a good plan. Seemingly, you benefited everybody. Did such a good job in planning for your future. And what he did was say, I'm getting out of the wealth building business, so I need to get in the relationship building business. Brilliant. Why? Because when my wealth fails, I've got these relationships. And so what Jesus is not saying is you should go and, and lie and you should steal and you should buy friends. That's not what he's saying. But he's saying if you were really, really wise, maybe you would look into the world and say when wealth fails, and wealth always fails, we know that. At some point, either you make it, you lose it, maybe it's stolen, or maybe you have so much of it and you realize it doesn't really satisfy you, or you die with a whole bunch of money and you realize, well, what was the good anyways? But eventually your wealth fails. When your wealth fails, what's your investment plan going to be? Maybe primarily we need to get out of the wealth building business and into the relationship building business. That's what this guy has done. Smart. It's really smart. He realizes, I need to invest in something that can't be taken away from me, something that's really, really valuable. I'm going to invest in these people. So verse 9, we unpack some of that, Jesus does. Here's the lesson. Use your worldly resources uh, to benefit others and make friends. Then when your possessions are gone, they will welcome you to eternal home. Get out of the wealth building business and into the relationship building business. How I'd summarize that. Because if your whole bent, if your whole goal is more money, more stuff, Eventually that will fail. I think what he's saying is, look, this guy, the reason he was so smart, he realized he's getting fired. He's realizing that this wealth isn't going to last forever. I need relationships. What if we just really, really realized that one day all our wealth is going to be gone or it's going to be meaningless or it's not going to provide for us what we really need? Then we would say, right now what I need to do is invest in something that's more valuable and more eternal. 
community, friends, relationship, people. Why? So that one day we welcome each other into eternal dwellings. One way we realize that the love of God that, that is interacting around people, we can use our generosity to build this kind of communities where people love and care for each other. That's eternally valuable. More valuable than any money, any wealth that we might have. So Jesus goes on and he says, if you are faithful in little things, you'll be faithful in large ones. But if you're dishonest in little things, you won't be honest with greater responsibilities. And if you are untrustworthy about worldly wealth, who will trust you with the true riches in heaven? And if you are not faithful with other people's things, why should you be trusted with the things of your own? So here we go. Wait, what are you talking about? Because... I mean, the, the manager seemed to be dishonest, but he was commended for it. And now Jesus is saying, but if you're dishonest with worldly wealth, then what about eternal things? Well, and that's again the point. He's not saying this guy was so great because he was dishonest. He's saying the reason he was, he, was shrewd, he, was, he was praised is because he was shrewd. He saw a problem and he fixed it. He saw what was truly valuable and he invested in it. And so now Jesus is saying, what if the children of the light realized what was really, really valuable? And so that's what I'm going to invest in. What if we could read the times, the signs of the times and what's really going to last and invested in that? What if we really, really believed that the best investment strategy wasn't building up more wealth and more possessions and having all kinds of stuff because eventually that's going to fail. But what's really, really valuable is helping to provide for the needs of people holistically. Their physical needs, their emotional needs, their spiritual needs. What if we were creating communities of reciprocity where we're caring for each other, loving for each other, where we're generous towards each other, where my resources are our resources because that's what's really going to make a difference in the world. That's really what is valuable. So if you're untrustworthy about worldly wealth, if you can't really be trusted with, with actual money, then who's going to trust you with true riches of heaven? Right? If you can't even get around, well, what should I do with this temporary money that I have? And you can't invest it in things of eternal, then maybe you're just not ready for that. Maybe this is the practicing ground. What we do with our money and our possessions is a practicing ground for what's really, really important. It's preparing us as people. It's preparing our hearts. It's transforming us when we are generous to really understand what's valuable in God's kingdom. And that's other people. It's relationship. It's investing in people. So how should I plan for the future? What's, what's really the wise investment? What should we do? Building relationships is a better investment plan than building wealth. Caring for people. Again, I believe building into creating communities. Helping people physically. Helping people emotionally. Helping people spiritually with resources. It's a resistance against selfishness. A resistance against greed. A resistance against individualism. It's a resistance against the, the cultural current that just says everything that you earn is for you. You own it. Build it up. You know, Greed is good. Have more stuff. You're going to be happier if you have. It's just a resistance to that and saying, I don't have to live that way. See, Jesus will go on to say, no one can serve two masters for you will hate one and love the other. You'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and be enslaved to money. You can't serve God and money. You got to pick which one is really Lord. Which one, which one do I follow? Which one are my, my highest level of, of uh, devotion? Where do my investments really go? And money's a really good tool, but it's a really terrible master. See, when money becomes our master, we get more anxious. We always need more. It drives greed. Get more money. Earn more. Save more. Pile up more. Buy more. Have more. 
And when money becomes our master and when our, our most important decisions are based on, well, does it benefit me financially instead of, is it a community building thing? Does this benefit others? Does it benefit our community? Does it benefit uh, the relationships that I'm trying to build? Instead, it becomes very selfish and individualistic and all about me. And it drives this anxiety, greed, and want. See, when God becomes our, our master, we realize he's a good master. He, he, he's generous. He gives us everything that we need. We're managers. He's the one that gives us everything. And we go, it's just my job to disperse it. We talked about that a, a few weeks ago. I'm not an owner primarily. I'm not an earner primarily. I receive it and I can give it. And I don't have to worry, right? We can enjoy peace instead of anxiety because God provides everything for him and I can distribute to other people. I can build relationships and community. I can help people provide them with spiritual resources and emotional resources and physical resources because that's just what God does for me and I can pass it along to him. God becomes this, this great, loving, compassionate owner or employer who just says, I'm going to provide for you everything. You don't have to worry. You can be content instead of greedy. You can be joyous instead of wanting everything. So uh, now I ask you, do you have a relationship investment strategy? You might have a, and again, I don't think this means that we shouldn't uh, plan for retirement or plan to help our kids get through university or, or college or whatever they're going to do. Uh, we shouldn't save money. I just mean that our top priority, we should realize that we are, we are investing in people. We're investing in relationships in this world to bring the kingdom of God to this world the best we can. And so um, if we're going to be children of light and learn how to be prude, prudent and, and shrewd, have a plan, we need, to, we need to be able to interpret the signs of the times. What's really important? Well, one day all our wealth is going to fail. It's going to mean nothing. But our relationships and people and whether or not we've helped other people is going to matter eternally. So what's your relationship investment strategy? How are you using your possessions and your wealth, your money, however much or little that is, to invest in other people? I think about this. Uh, do you think about your home as a relational investment? A place where people can come, where you can share meals, where you can get to know them, where you can, you can learn about who they are and what they struggle with and what their joys are, to love them and care for them, to accept people. Maybe in your home you have an extra room and you say this is a place where people can come and people can stay if they had a need. But my home is not just my home, it's, it's our home. What about your possessions as relational investments? You know, I know some people who have, for example, uh, they've been really blessed in their life and, and they have... Um, vacation properties. Or we have a family friend who, who has timeshare. They have a bunch of weeks of timeshare where they can go on vacations around. And uh, we, we know there's these generous people who sometimes have just called us and they know, hey, you've got a young family. You work hard. You're in ministry. We know that you're doing all these things and it's hard to take a break. We want to give you a week of our timeshare. And they've just taken something that's theirs, technically speaking, and said, we want to bless other people with it. It's a possession we have that we can bless other people with. What about your car as a relational investment? When I was in seminary, I had this friend, and um, a whole bunch of people lived on campus at the seminary, and uh, it was a, a campus that wasn't close to a ton of stuff, um, even grocery stores. But he was known, my friend Eric, for uh, if somebody said, oh, I got to get to the grocery store, I got to go do something, I got to run an errand, he would go, hey, do you need the car? Because he had a car, but most people didn't have a car. And so people just knew, if you need a car, go talk to Eric, and, and he'll get one. And one day, uh, one, of my, one of the friends in kind of our circle said to us, Hey, have you ever noticed how Eric talks about his car? And we were like, what do you mean? And he says, she said, you know, he always says the car. Do you need the car? He never says my car. Technically, his name is on the title. He owned that car technically. But he saw it as our car. Somebody needs the car? Yeah, take the car. Here's the keys. 
What about your money as a relational investment to be able to give generously? What about your job? Do you make decisions on your career and your job based on how much money it can make you? That's important. It should be factored in. Or do you make those decisions about your career and your job and what you're going to pursue based on what kind of impact you can make? And all these things we have choices about, uh, ultimately, what's most important to us and who is our God? Is God our God or is money our God? And I think when we can build a trust, we can realize that, that money is a terrible master. We can use money as a good tool, but we should serve God. It should never be a way or the other way around, that, that we serve money and we use God. But we do that sometimes, right? To be happy, to be safe, to be secure, to have the life that I want, to be rich. I need more and more and more and more. God, would you help me have more and more and more? We use God and serve money. Never works. Always leaves us more anxious, struggling more. But when we realize that God is so generous and so loving and provides everything that we can have, we can have a peace that we serve him and we use our money. So last week, uh, if you tuned in, it was Mother's Day and, and my mom spoke and I hope you've watched that. If you haven't, go back. And she told uh, some stories about some of the treasures that she found in dark places and difficult times in her life. And one of the stories she told was that um, after my dad, her husband had died, uh, of cancer, she was told, she went to a financial planner and she was told, there's just not enough money coming in for you to keep your house. You're going to have to get rid of your house. You can't keep it. You can't afford that. Just think of just how difficult that, that, that would be to hear something like that. And she told stories about how God just did miracles and provided people around her and circumstances to provide for her and for us every single day. And I'll tell you another story. I remember, I was a teenager at that time, and I remember, um, I remember sitting with my mom at that time uh, of life in church, sitting right next to her each week. And one of the things I noticed was that uh, every week that was a, a payday week, when we were sitting in church, the, the offering plates, they would pass by. And every time my mom would take out an envelope with a check in it and she would put it in the offering plate. And I remember thinking, man, here we are. I know that we don't have enough. I know that there's not enough money coming in to pay all the bills. And yet here she is every time she gets paid, she's putting an envelope and a check in the plate. And I remember talking to her sometime after that and kind of, you know, well, what was that all about? Like, you really can't expect somebody to be, to be giving money away when they, they literally don't have enough. There's not enough coming in. And I, and I tell you this, because this is a lesson that stuck with me. Uh, it's been a real life lesson. I, I think could be a, a real important lesson for so many of us. I remember her saying that when she gave that check, the, the first of what she had earned on her paycheck, always the first chunk she gave back to God. That was an act of worship. That was an act of declaring that God is God. It was an act of trust that said, ultimately, I don't depend on my paycheck to provide my needs, although it's important to go work and get a paycheck, but I ultimately trust in God to provide for every need. And I know that even if my money fails and my job fails and my checks fail, I know that God will never fail and I don't have to worry about having enough because my God will give me more than enough. And so every time she got paid the first of whatever she got, she put in that plate as a resistance to serving money, as a resistance to making money God, as a resistance to anxiety, as a resistance to, to saying that I don't have enough, saying God always provides for me enough. And so she gave generously. And you might say, man, you can't expect, you can't tell someone, you can't tell a widow like that, that they have to give money away, they have to be generous. I, I don't. And she never had to give any of that. Nobody has to give anything away but she chose to in a declaration of trust 
and of worship that said, money is not my God. God is my God. And God always gives me more than enough. And I look back at those times and not every day was easy. Some of those days were tough for us and, and there were difficult moments. But I also know this, that nobody in my family ever went without. We never had less than enough because our God always gives us more than enough. And we can trust him for that. So Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are generous. We thank you that we know that generosity is, is what you're about and therefore what we can be about. Thank you for providing for us. Thank you for giving us everything that we need. Help us to be the kind of people that trust in you so deeply that we're willing to mirror that into the world around us and to care for people, to invest in relationships, invest in the needs of other people, and there to find that, that this world and our lives are so much richer when we give them away. In Jesus' name, amen.